Welcome to Feeling Asian, a podcast where two Asians talk about their feelings. I'm Youngmi Mayer. And I'm Brian Park. We have like such a crazy, exciting episode for you this week, but it's it's very different. So we're going to just like power through the Patreon shoutouts and get to it right away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners out there, if you like the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash feeling Asian. We offer different exclusive benefits and any donation amount gets you a shout out on the podcast where Young Me and I guess who you are based on your name alone. And Let's without further it. ado, our first Patreon shout out for this episode goes out to, oh, it's a special one. This Ooh. is a shout out to Chelsea Wang on behalf of Lior Apple Kraut. So Lior Apple Kraut donated, but requested that we give a shout out to Chelsea Wing. Wow. So let's give a guess to Chelsea Wing. <laughs> Chelsea, Chelsea Wing, Wing, you are loved. You are loved. <laughs> you are loved. I see a hairstyle, brown layered hair. I was going to guess like a bob. Oh. Sort of like Jane from Daria. She oh. has the Yeah, that kind of hairstyle. That's Damn. the hairstyle I see so much. Well, Damn. I made a Daria head. reference. That's wow. a my Brian age is in showing. his 30s. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about people like teenagers right now discovering Daria and they're like, this is so cool. And it makes me cringe so hard thinking that there's a teenager that just discovered it. Oh my god. All the young all the youngs are like, what's Daria? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Jane was Asian? Yes. We was are she claiming, supposed to be Asian? We're claiming Jane is Asian. Because there was like an Asian character on there too, right? But the Asian one was like Daria's sister's oh, friend, like the dumb dumb no, one. No, Daria had a crush no? on Jane's brother. He's like had the spiky hair and was in a band. Travis, yeah. I think. Yes, I was also yeah. I was also in love with him, Jane's brother. <laughs> yeah, so Chelsea Wing is giving me big Jane from Daria energy. Mm. Bob, art school, where's Doc yeah. Martens? In any case, Chelsea Wing, let us know if we're in the ballpark. And Lior, thank you for supporting the podcast. And once again, <laughs> Chelsea, you are loved. Our second shout out for this episode goes out to... Jenna Ezra. I feel like Jenna Ezra is a biracial person. Same. Right? But, and I'm going to guess Japanese and white is my guess. Mm. That's the vibe I'm getting from Jenna Ezra. Jenna Ezra. I'm going to guess half Filipino. Half oh, white. wow. Yeah. yeah. All right. Jenna Ezra owns a comic yeah. book store. What? Yeah, this whole was... shout out portion is very Daria. <laughs> <It's> very <laughs> 1997 vibes. <laughs> she owns a comic book store and she has a Patreon to support her cosplay. Mm. She she absolutely crushes at conventions is what my guess I is. Could, I'm getting the cosplay vibes. Well, I yeah. kind of want to. Yeah, I'm definitely getting that vibe. Yes. Jenna. Right? Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. But she's... You know, there's some bad cosplay out there, but she's yeah in the top 1%. She is the elite of cosplay. The cosplay, the elite cosplay is some of the content that gets sent to me on TikTok. I don't know why, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I watch it. I'm like, I, I love this. I don't, this is weird, but I like it a lot. Oh, it's so good. 
It's really it's impre- so good. So impressive. Yeah, I, I kind of want to do it. What if like one day I'd like you see me on the street, <laughs> <laughs> just in like a full gu- in a full Gundam, a Gundam wing like Transformers costume? <laughs> I'm like nothing, Brian. If you had, if you were to do cosplay, what, who would you cosplay? I would cosplay as Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop because he wow. has really. I feel like I could do his hair, and he's cool mm. as hell. I would aspire to that. But yeah. the end result would be like if Spike Spiegel was left out in the sun for too long and <laughs> was like exposed to radio, <laughs> was exposed to radiation. <laughs> I would I would be the sexy woman from Roger Rabbit. I forgot her name. What oh, was the, her name? With the red dress. Oh, oh my God. That right? was my first. Jess- uh, Jessica Rabbit. Is that her yeah, name? Yeah, yeah. That was, I'm pretty sure Jessica Rabbit was my first like sexual Boner. feeling I ever had. Yeah. Mm, I me too. distinctly remember watching Roger Rabbit and seeing Jessica Rabbit. It made me feel like, I don't know what this is. I kind of Funny like. in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> but I like <laughs> Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> I want to hang out with yeah. Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> I want to hold her hand. <laughs> That's oh. what I would do. Well, anyways, Jenna... Keep doing you. Keep doing amazing cosplay. And our last <laughs> shout out for this episode goes out to Saad Ahmed. So it is spelled S-A-A-D. I apologize if I mispronounced that. Saad. Saad Ahmed. I'm seeing somebody that is very young. That's my psychic mm. vibe. I feel like this person is in school, college, possibly college. maybe high school. I was That's like... Guess- my- that's I was going to get high school. Me too. Oh my God. Did Sa- you get that vibe too? Yes. But Saad Ahmed is the most popular kid in his high school, but he excels in everything. So he's the, you know, he was that type of kid who is the captain of the varsity soccer team. And he's also the valedictorian, but he's not a douche. So everyone really likes him and everyone wants him to succeed. I was thinking like popular as a theater kid, but oh. I don't even know if that's humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, yeah, he's like a theater kid, but he's uh, uh, it not is possible. A, it like is possible. He's a cool if, theater kid. Yeah. If he goes to that um that school in New York, LaGuardia High. Basically, every famous actor came from LaGuardia High School. Like Timothy Chalamet went to LaGuardia High School. The legend, the chlamydia legend himself. (laughs) Right. If you go to a performing arts high school like that, you can be popular as a theater kid because everyone at the school is a theater nerd. Yeah. Not to take the spotlight away from Saad, but like, can you imagine how insufferable Timothy Chalamet was at LaGuardia High School and he was so popular and giving everyone chlamydia? Insufferable. Can you imagine? (laughs) I mean, that sounds like your nightmare, young me, because... In the MTV show they did where all of those kids want to be famous. Like the cool thing to do is to jump up on top of the cafeteria table and then start performing. (laughs) I literally, did you see my body? It's so losery. (laughs) Maybe they do need to get beat up. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean that. Like not not theater kids, just Timothy Chalamet doing that. I can't tell if you're praising Saad or roasting Saad anymore. 
No, I feel like no, I feel like Saad is doing it, and he's cool. It's just I'm just anti Timothy Chalamet. He bothers me. I don't know why. Oh, because remember we had a, we had a guest on the show that that knew him personally, and they said a story about how much he sucks. Do you remember that, Brian? Yes, I do. And we remember. won't say anymore. Remember? We won't say anymore. We won't say anymore. But they had a personal story about how much he sucks, and I was like, man, he sucks. Personal anyway. beef. Anyways, Saad, thank you for your donation. And thank you to all the listeners who support us on Patreon. And once again, you can support us at patreon.com slash feelingasian. You know what's amazing? How one tiny action can multiply into big changes for the better. Take getting vaccinated. Today, everyone 12 and over is eligible for COVID-19 vaccine. So say you get vaccinated today then you help find a vaccine center for your neighbor and she sends an appointment link to her best friend and her best friend, well, you get the idea. Plus, now getting vaccinated is easier. There are more clinics, pharmacies, and pop-ups than before. That means more appointments available, even walk-ins. And all it takes is someone like you to help get things started. Let's get everyone 12 and older vaccinated against COVID-19. We can do this. Visit vaccines.gov today to find vaccines near you. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, yeah, guys, as Young Lee mentioned, this episode is a little bit different. First and foremost, we're just going to say we're going to skip our usual practice of asking each other, how are you feeling? Because Which is crazy. It's crazy. I'm oh, sorry, this is I keep saying crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but we're doing that because... Um, this episode is really unique. It's really special. Uh, we invited six different mental health care providers and on this show. And, um, you know, we, we had the tremendous privilege of being able to speak to them and they were able to provide their insights into their work. And yeah, yeah this episode, it's less about young me and me. Who gives a shit? How we feel. We want to make room for them and also room. Well, this episode, I feel like we wanted to do. How are you feeling? I'm excited. I'm excited to introduce these wonderful therapists and mental health care providers to our listeners. That's how I'm feeling, young me. Yeah, I'm feeling very proud. One word answers. Proud of this episode. (laughs) So let's move on. Yeah. So, you know, this last year... um, has been extremely hard on um, everyone, you know, pandemic related. And, but it's been especially hard for Asian Americans who've, uh, yeah, it's just been a long and hard year for a number of reasons. And in addition to the pandemic, we have the trauma of xenophobia, anti-Asian racism, and um, just violence um, heightened by the political climate. And Uh, you know, young me and I, we're, we're not professionals in the field of mental health. Um, I basically, the joke is that I talk about how I want to be a therapist, but I keep having <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, as you all know, listeners, we started this podcast as um, a space for us to openly discuss our emotions and to be transparent about mental health and our personal therapy journeys. And we're very fortunate that anyone even listens to this, but 
Uh, over the course of this podcast, we've been contacted by a lot of you listeners asking us for resources on how to find a therapist or where to even find one. And we wanted to um, dedicate an episode to that. And we wanted to provide resources for our listeners, but also take a look at some of the Asian Americans who are working in this field. And so what we've done is we've invited six um, different mental health care providers, and we all asked them the same question, which is, what are specific issues you see in API clients regarding mental health? And yeah, um, it was extremely, it was a tremendous privilege to be able to speak to them. But mm. um, I'm really excited that we're able to um, share their insights with all of you. In the course of discussing their clients, we also did want to like put a spotlight on them as Asian Americans working in this field. And a lot of them did go into how it feels working in a place that was, I think we have a statistic later on in the show, 88% white and only 2.2% Asian, which is, you know, something. So <laughs> <laughs> that sounds rough, right? Um, so we were contacted by many, many people and we were very surprised. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't interview all of them, but we have included a list of contact information of the of the people who did agree to have their information shared. Um, we really wanted to do this episode because, like, not to generalize, but Asians have a tendency to, like, quote, unquote, be okay no matter what. Now that, um, you know, like, AAPI month, there was, like, a little boost in attention towards, like, issues that we were having, but now that that's over, and I, this is, you know, personally how I'm feeling but like in America there's like this idea that we're moving past the pandemic but obviously with respect to knowing what's going on in the rest of the world and like uh, how the pandemic is like you know such a huge like catastrophe right now in a lot of parts of Asia um, but for Americans you know there's this like idea that it's sort of coming to an end, especially quarantine. And I think me personally, my fear, just knowing a lot of Asian people in my life and like the tendency to like pretend that everything is okay. Um, my fear was that a lot of like AAPI people will jump back into this like normal life and like bury all this trauma and it's substantial trauma. And, um, so I, I feel like I wanted to really do this episode right now before everyone, you know, and their minds start to like get into this mode of thinking that everything's back to normal. And hopefully this episode will encourage some of you to maybe seek treatment, even if it's not, you know, through like traditional means like this sort of therapy. But hopefully, you know, it encourages you to like create room for yourself. Our first mental health care professional is Diana Liao. She, her is a licensed psychotherapist based in New York. She specializes in life transitions, stress, anxiety, trauma, and identity. She can be reached on Instagram at Therapy with Diana. And Diana is also one of the co-founders of Bridges Mental Health, which is a mental health directory um, catered to Asian Pacific Islander, South Asian Americans in New York City. And you can find that at bridgesmentalhealth.com. The thing is, I do see a mostly Asian and Asian American population mm. in my private practice. And so some of the themes that keep coming up for me in, and in my sessions with my clients are um, themes of perfectionism. That's a big one. Um, 
Also, the idea of knowing what we want and need. I think that has been something that comes up a lot. Um, and that impacts all areas, right? Like our careers, our personal relationships, and even just our ability to take care of ourselves. Um, so often we are doing things for other mm. people or we feel that we have expectations from other people and we operate sort of automatically um, on those assumptions without kind of taking in what it is that we might want or need. And I think that's something that definitely comes up in our therapy mm. sessions. Um yeah. And also relationships is a big one, you know, navigating relationships with our parents, with um, friends, with non-Asian friends, with colleagues, with partners. And that also like makes me think about like the work relationships, like how do we be more assertive at work? Some of us um, may not have learned that from our um, relationships at home or growing up. Um, relationships with parents I'm thinking about also in terms of as they age what is our relationship with our parents um, going to be like um, and then in personal relationships um, definitely in mm. dating I think there are lots of different themes there like for women Asian mm -hmm. women um, it's the hypersexualization, um, and for men it's like sometimes it's the desexualization, and then there's also um, what it's like to be in an interracial relationship, inter, um, interracial dating, raising children who are biracial. Those are some of the like themes that have come up mm -hmm. in, um, in relationships. Um, and I'm, I, people may know of the term codependence and I, Oh, not yeah. really a big fan of that word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not really a big fan of the word. I feel like it, it can be pathologizing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that the way that it, it explains some of the issues that um, my clients are facing can be helpful just as a way to understand. Um, but that is something related to also learning how to set boundaries, which is something that comes up a lot. Wow. In sessions oh too, my like. gosh. I feel like you've, <clears throat> wow. You've, that covers all the bases, but let's, let's yeah. dig into this young me. Um, I think that yeah. your perspective is very unique in that, you, as you mentioned, uh, most of your clients and patients that you see are Asian American. And I feel like that might not be the case for Asian American therapists. But perhaps this could be because you're based in the New York City area and there's a lot of Asian Americans in this area. Um, but one thing that struck me is this idea of perfectionism. Because Youngmi and I receive a lot of DMs from our listeners where they echo um, sort of the sentiment that we express on the podcast is there's this feeling of not being enough. And I'm wondering where, and I know it's a case-by-case case case basis, um, but just uh, from a general sense, where do you think that comes from? Why do you think that's so unique to the Asian American experience? And perhaps do you have any tools for people who might be suffering from that? Yeah, I think that's really complicated. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's not unique to the Asian American experience, but it is definitely very common. And the feeling of not being enough, um, well, the perfectionism, right? It's, um, in some cases, perfectionism is sort of a tool, a coping strategy with like not knowing what we want or not knowing our value. Mm. Right. And a way to deal with that is just like, you know, maybe I'll just make it easier on myself in a way by just doing everything perfectly. Mm. And then I don't have to be anxious about anything. I could just solve that problem right there. Right. And, um, in terms of not being enough, um, 
Yeah, well, a lot of it does start with your first relationships, right? Whether you felt supported, whether you felt validated growing up. And, um, you know, everybody's so different, right? And there are certain people who need a lot more of that than others. Um, and I do think that part of being um, in the Asian American sort of diaspora, if you're an immigrant, you know, like a second generation or even like a first generation, like, there's a lot of um, trauma that our parents' generation may have gone through and they didn't get what they needed growing up. Mm -hmm. And so their parenting skills, you know, are also limited in the sense like, you know, no one showed them the right way either. Mm -hmm. And um, so having that context to understand that, you know, maybe our upbringings were not what we would have wanted. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we didn't get everything that we might have needed. And so this feeling of like, being unsure, being, um, you know, if you're not getting that support, a lot of your support and a lot of your validation comes from other people then, right? Like looking mm -hmm. around at society and, you know, the, the model of like American individualism and all of that, you know, may be different. It may be hard for someone of color, someone who is, um, an outsider in this country to feel really connected with. And so there is this vague feeling of like, always like, I don't know, do I fit in here? Do I not fit in here? I'm getting messages and, you know, like microaggressions, like some people right. don't realize that they're experiencing them growing up no. until much later. They realize like, Oh, that was actually terrible. And I just kind of internalized that and just mm -hmm. like put it aside and moved along and thought it was nothing. And when you spend a whole lifetime doing that decades doing that, it definitely has an effect of making people feel unsure about themselves. Right. Mm. I, I think that, I think that really ties into the second part of your answer, which was the issues that you're facing with your Asian American clients where they feel, um, like not selfless, like they're putting everyone else around them. It sort of like ties into what you're seeing about how, you know, Asian Americans, correct me if I'm wrong, but that kind of reads kind of like a trauma response, you know, like you're reading, you're reading everyone else to see what you're supposed to be doing and you're constantly reading the room. And so you end up like as an adult being like, oh, like how, who am I? And I'm never good enough because you're picking up I feel like if you live that way, you're constantly picking up like negative reinforcement and you're so lost because you're not putting your ego and yourself first. Do you think that's like tied to that selfless feeling? Yeah, definitely. I think you hit on something there because it's, you know, if you've learned from whatever your upbringing is, like that there's tension in the home, like mom and dad are not happy with each other. Okay. I don't want to add to that. I'm just going to you know, sort of like keep everyone happy, um, like not talk about certain subjects with my parents because I know it'll like make them angry. And that becomes your kind of like adaptive coping strategy. Like, mm. okay, I've learned how to manage this conflict mm -hmm. by trying to keep everyone happy. Mm. And like you said, go, going into other environments, other contexts, there are other factors at play and you, you keep adjusting. And I do hear a lot from clients like like there's a sense of like, you know, I, I'm very easygoing and adaptable. And like the flip side of that is kind of losing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like the dark side of being yeah. too adaptable, right, right. too flexible is that you're sort of ignoring your own wants and needs and you don't know yourself. Mm. And I think you're right. At some point, like we, we all reach a moment where we're like, wait, what do I want? And like, how did that get lost 
you know, along the way. And that becomes really hard for people to sort of grapple with. Oh my God. Um, I know that. (laughs) What you just described really hit (laughs) me so hard. (laughs) Brian's been having some moments (laughs) while doing this episode. I'm okay. Um, Speaking of which, um, I find your career to be quite inspiring, Diana, in that uh, you mentioned up top that you specialize in um, life transitions and you yourself have gone through, uh, know a thing or two about life transitions, correct? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of the issues that I described were issues that I was facing. Mm -hmm. um, And one of them was definitely like, what do I want? What do I need? I didn't know. And I started out my career not as a therapist, but as someone who worked in pharmaceutical advertising. That was my first job and um, ended up doing 11 years in marketing and advertising. Um, And I had thought, you know, not sure I like this career, but um, it was interesting enough. It was challenging. And I thought like I wasn't giving it enough of a chance. And also looked around me and saw and saw a lot of people who were just like really focused on career advancement Mm -hmm. in this world and I just thought like oh I don't know what's wrong with me I'm not feeling that same drive like I'm working really hard but it does not seem to be coming from a place of like passion um I don't understand really have the tools Diana I don't understand how you you weren't passionate about pharmaceutical advertising (laughs) (laughs) sorry no no shade to people who do that for a living yeah I'm just joking well it's funny because when I ended up being a therapist I thought oh I know all these these medications (laughs) I worked on I did advertising I had to research these medications for you know mental health so um so I thought it came full circle at the end so I'm glad I started there but no exactly I was not passionate and eventually it changed into like entertainment advertising so Mm -hmm. there's always like something keeping me in the industry something that was fun Mm -hmm. Um, but I realized like fun alone is not enough Mm. (laughs) to sustain passion and So it took me a while to really like come to the conclusion that, okay, I can't just take another job hoping that it will get better. This is clearly not the industry or career for me, not aligned with my values, not quite sure what my values are, but not aligned as far as I know. And I just basically saved up money, took some time off. And then, I mean, I spent a year and a half sort of trying different careers and traveling and doing yoga and going to therapy and just trying to kind of like have all my thoughts collect them all try to like see what felt good and I mean I did I spent like eight months doing photography like event photography Mm. I did some other things in the meantime and then in the end I had a few conversations with people who just like I think it was timing Mm -hmm. and I was ready to hear it Mm -hmm. and some people were talking about mental health Mm -hmm. and you know I have a younger sister who has um, uh, some issues and so I was at home spending a lot of time with her and helping her navigate some like the system Mm -hmm. and so I met with a lot of social workers at that Mm -hmm. time and so I started interviewing basically everybody about what they did whether they liked it or not and then at some point it was like I think I would like it but now I just have to decide do I go to school like do I go back to school and make this huge leap right um and so in the end I just decided okay well I guess I just try it and if I don't like it I can you know quit or something and so I did it and now I'm very much on the other side of things. There was a huge 
you know, like going back to school when you're older, going back to not making money, starting over again is hard, you know, and I think it's hard for anybody. Um, But, you know, luckily I had the support of my parents and um, luckily also like I had a really good sense that I thought that I would like it. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm here, I'm just so glad I made that change because like I talk to people who work in marketing now, right. like they're my clients right. mm-hmm. and I'm like, Oh, yes, I remember that. I don't have any passion for it. I don't know why. And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I feel that, um, there's, these things are all connected in a way because I mm-hmm. can personally relate to it where this pursuit of perfection can almost be a hindrance to your own self. And I've felt um, these tugs and pulls before where I question my passion for a line of work. And uh, that questioning then makes me feel bad or guilty about myself because that deviates from this path of perfection. Like if you are doing the perfect thing, there really shouldn't be any self-doubt. And now that I'm questioning it, then that makes me less than perfect, which then makes me feel (sighs) bad. You know, <laughs> and um, always feel bad. No, <laughs> no, but I'm just saying that, <laughs> that I find your me. story very inspiring because um, I feel like a lot of people can relate to it, and I think a lot of people in their 20s, especially, go through these sort of career doubts and feel like it might be too late to switch mm. a career, switch into a new career, try something new. You know, and we talk about this too. We we know like Asians who have gone to Harvard and have become whatever doctors and their parents aren't happy. There's it's always like, it's like a losing game when you're playing for other people, you know? Mm. And I always tell people like, you cannot assume responsibility for other people's feelings. Um, even though that's what we're taught, right? It's like at the, at some point we reach that realization. That yeah. Say it again, Diana. That was a big, that was such a big epiphany for me when I was in therapy. It's like, oh, if someone else is feeling an emotion, like that's not like your responsibility. Yeah. And I think that's so hard for Asian Americans sometimes because it's like, no, we want to be sensitive. Yes. But even if you jump through hoops to try to make everyone happy, someone is still going to be unhappy and it's not because of you. It's because of them. Mm. Right. Young me literally just like, got a TikTok yeah. comment that called her power cringe. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that's, I can't control what they think. <laughs> that's, you know, yeah. It's what Dolly Parton said, you know, what other, this is different than emotions. What other people think of you is none of your business. What, what other people are feeling, none of, none of your business. It's out of your control. Mm. And that was like a big realization for me. Before you go, can we ask you the question that we'd like to ask all our guests? What is something that you are proud of? I was unprepared for this. Something I'm proud of. Um, I mean, I'm proud of, uh, you know, I, I came into this thinking, okay, I can see myself as a career therapist. And that seems really great to me. But ever since I've started my private practice, I've been pulled into doing other things, which have been sort of out of my comfort zone, like doing webinars and presentations. And I've, I mean, I came from marketing. I knew I did not want to do those things like doing presentations and stuff. But I think over the past few months with everything that has been happening in the Asian community with the violence and the attacks, like I felt this like pull to do that for that reason. And I guess I'm really proud that I've been, that I've said yes to that, even though it was something I felt uncomfortable with initially. 
are there any resources that you would like to plug, especially for uh, listeners who might reside in the tri-state area? Yeah, definitely. Um, I and two other women in the in New York, we started up this therapist directory called Bridges Mental Health. Um, we started it up on the side. We're all working therapists, but it's a directory meant to connect people in the Asian Pacific Islander, South Asian communities with therapists that are culturally sensitive from their backgrounds. And the website is called Bridges Mental Health. Um, and um, we also have blog posts on there about issues like the ones we've talked about today, perfectionism, codependence, all of that. And um, it's also been a really great place for therapists um, to connect because, you know, when you're in private practice, you don't really have a lot of connection with other therapists. And right. especially as Asian therapists, to feel like there's a community of Asian therapists out there, it's been really nice to see people connecting and also just helping people find therapists that really understand them. So I would definitely love for people to explore that if they're thinking about finding a therapist who's Asian. Uh, and you can find us on Instagram at Bridges Mental Health. So that's definitely something um, I would uh, love people to go take a look at. Diana, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you. Bye. 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 Our next mental health care professionals are doctors Peter Adams, he, him, and Melissa Yao, she, her, have been licensed psychologists for 10 years and Asian American forever. They both received their doctorates in counseling psychology at The Ohio State University. Their private practice, Buckeye Psychology, is based in Durham, North Carolina, and seeks to illuminate Asian American mental health. Both are passionate about decolonizing mental health and normalizing therapy for Asian Americans. Melissa is Filipino-Chinese and likes tiny hats. Peter is a biracial Korean who hates right-handed desks. In my caseload, so I'm in private practice, and in my caseload, I see probably half half my clients are Asian. And, mm. um, you know, I want to say, I want to talk a little bit about some of the issues that I see among my caseload, some of the trends, um, just to kind of normalize the experience, normalize kind of what mental health looks like among Asian Americans, and just normalize the experience of therapy. I think sometimes people think like, oh, therapy is only for for people who have like really severe mental illness and my issues aren't severe enough, like I shouldn't go to therapy, I have to wait until I'm in crisis. And that's really not the case at mm. all. Um, and I, I want to say too that, you know, Asian Americans come to therapy with a wide range of issues and they're not always related to being Asian. You know, they come mm -hmm to therapy for issues with relationships, with anxiety, with depression, um, with like academic issues. Um, but, but I think it's always important to look at those issues through the lens of kind of like thinking about culture and how their Asian identity, how their Asian values, how their Asian family impacts what those issues look like and what then kind of their treatment should look like. Yeah. So like who we are impacts how we think through our problems, mm. right? Right. And our issues. And so there's probably a handful of things we hope that listeners would get from today. And one of them is that also, you know, therapy is not just a thing white people do. <laughs> and, you know, look, look in your areas. We're out there, you know, it's sparse, but we're there. Yes. There aren't very many of us. Um, there, yeah. Like in, even like in this area where there are a lot of therapists, there, mm -hmm. it's just, there's just a handful of Asian therapists. And, um, and, you know, the reality too, is that I think Asians, um, 
Asians don't have the lowest health-seeking rate of any racial or ethnic group, so they're the least right. likely to seek therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, some of it, I don't, and I don't know if any of your other guests talked about like some of the reasons why Asians don't come to therapy. Um, you know, some of it is stigma. Some of it yes. is you know language barriers, lack of um, lack of culturally competent like mental health providers. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, this model minority myth, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking like, oh, Asians don't have issues. They don't need professional help. They don't need mental health resources. Um, They should be able to solve problems kind of on their own. And there's, there's kind of a secrecy sometimes around mental health issues where maybe you grew up seeing somebody in your family who was struggling with depression or maybe, you know, schizophrenia and the family never addressed it. It was something that was kind of kept secret. It was never, um, never, you know, that, that person like never went to a therapist or a psychiatrist. And so I kind of gives the impression like, Oh, mental health is something that is, you know, it's not acceptable. It's not okay to talk about, yeah, we shouldn't publicize it outside of the family and, um, and kind of save face by, uh, and then, you know, the whole family suffers that person who is experiencing mental illness suffers and kind of perpetuates that, that cycle of um, kind of secrecy and, and stigma. Right. You know, I think you touched on something that I don't think we've discussed yet, which is like the um, codependent nature of like a lot of Asian family structures where it's like, you know, what you said. I'm sure a lot of listeners know what we're talking about. But even in my family and my Korean families, if they suffer from mental illness, it was huge stigma. It was something that was such a secret. It was hidden. And um, if there was somebody in your family, it was sort of like tainted or they believe that it tainted the rest of you just by being mm-hmm. associated. And I think that mm-hmm. is unfortunately a part of some Asian cultures. To get into some of the nuance, right, of working within uh, kind of the larger diaspora mm-hmm. and Asian American clients is, I'd say most commonly mm-hmm. we're working with like 1.5 generation or on, mm-hmm. second generation mm-hmm. on. Certainly people who are first gen, but... The bulk is what you'd consider probably second generation Mm -hmm. and on. In respect to like our elders, I don't think from their own life experiences that they are really necessarily equipped to like know how to navigate the specific challenges that we're going to. And I don't want to be too, I don't want to assert this too strongly. Yeah. But a lot of Asian Americans, even though it's not directly discussed, are going through some form of like bicultural identity development. Mm. And I think it's very difficult for aunties, uncles, elders, our family to sort of, they just don't have the tools from their own experience necessarily to know how to like hold space for that. And yet at the same time, maybe it's not okay to go outside of your family. Yes. Yeah. So then you're kind of, you're kind of you're stuck. stuck. Right. Um, and you know that I think something I've been working on more within my own life. And then that of my Asian American clients is honoring the sort of underbelly of our identities that is more interdependent. Mm. Right. So mm. this sense of I, right, how we define, whether we explicitly think about it, how we define our sense of I mm-hmm. can be very different right? than if you're from like a just like, you know, Western culture yeah. or only grew up with the influences of like just kind of white European Americanized culture. So I've been really working on 
how to like honor and continue to hold that sense of interdependence that we have mm-hmm. and yet try mm-hmm. to move forward in our family systems and do that in a way that's a little healthier, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can really relate to what you're saying on an individual level in that um, I'd say three or four years ago is when I first started to see a therapist. And yeah. I often described to my friends how I felt like I was code switching a lot in that a lot of like the stresses I had existed in my family structure where I had to act a certain way and act very Korean. And then in my social life, I'm code switching into this white American version of myself where I'm being very individualistic and those things would come into conflict mm-hmm. a lot. And it wasn't until Young Me and I spoke to Hesu Jo, who is a therapist who was on this podcast um, mm-hmm. in an earlier episode where she... Um, emphasize the importance of finding a mental health care provider who could understand the cultural nuances of uh, an appropriate treatment because the therapist I was seeing at the time, she was tremendous and she was very, she was so great, but she was a white um, American woman. And I felt like at times her solution to everything was just, well, you can just cut off your parents. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you don't, no. you don't really Just understand. Just tell your mom to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, like, yes, I get it. But in yeah. practice, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like a lot of the, ther- a lot of the clients who I see are specifically looking for an Asian therapist mm. because they mm. want somebody who can understand their culture and won't pathologize it. Like mm. they, you know, a few of them yeah. have had previous experiences with white therapists who kind of gave the same advice, Brian, who was like, well, if, you know, if you're unhappy with your relationship with your, with your family and there's something toxic about those relationships or those, um, what that communication looks like, well, just don't talk to them. It's, it's not that easy. Like right. maybe there are parts yeah. of your culture, your family that you want to hold on to and you want to continue honoring and other parts that feel more problematic. But how do you like find it, how, find a middle path that yeah. doesn't mean that, you know, there's something bad or wrong about your, your family culture or your family yeah. values, but it's like trying to figure out like, how does this, like, what does, what do you want this to look like in your life? What are the parts that you hold on to and where are the parts where you might need to, I don't know, be more flexible or, or, um, shift, you know, shift in some way. I, I think it's so important what you just said about the pathologizing your culture. Cause when you're yeah. going to see a white therapist and they're saying like, wow, that's, that's psychologically abusive of mm-hmm. your mom. And then you're sitting there like, don't say that about my mom. And it feels really <laughs> bad. Maybe, maybe that's, that is the correct language, but like, it feels bad like, when like a white so guy is, if, I think about it in this way. <laughs> if my mom heard you, she would be so mad. <laughs> this white guy is telling you that your mom is like abusive and you're like, this doesn't feel right. Even though mm-hmm. maybe, you know, there's like a, f- a fine line there, I think. I think one of the issues with how we're trained in psychology mm-hmm. um, is because its deepest roots are in Germanic philosophy. Mm. And so it's very Western mm-hmm. in its sense of the self. What can happen, too, is as an Asian American client, if you are in particular an Asian American who is struggling with this sort of interdependence component... Mm-hmm. Not dependence, but healthy interdependence. That may get conceptualized. They're sitting there typing their notes. That may get conceptualized as a resistance. 
And, and, and what it is, is a, you know, maybe it conceptualizes a resistance to change when really they're not understanding your sense of I mm. and how mm-hmm. that sense of self is maybe different than they're used to considering. On your end of things, like as an Asian American mental health care provider, uh, what are some of the challenges that exist for the both of you? <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a lot of chance- challenges. I know you're going to talk about this. Um, there, like I said, there are so few of us in the field and it can feel really isolating to not have, just like not have support from your fellow therapist and, and also, um, not, I don't know, just, yeah, like not having the support, not having the understanding, not having the, like the, not being able to relate to other therapist experiences, um, is really tough, but it's also really rewarding to do the work that we do. Um, you want to talk about this? Yeah. 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 It's, that's, we want to stress that, um, because Melissa helped me recognize last night that a lot of my reflections leading up to our talk today were, the more of the challenges and the things that can feel negative. Um, mm. But it is deeply meaningful. And I want to say, be a therapist, yes. be a psychologist, Asian we people's need more out there. Asian Come on American in. American therapist. Like, sure. um, Brian, do it, Brian. Yeah, it's not too late, Brian. <laughs> right. Comedian therapist is like a perfect business card. Comedian <laughs> slash therapist. It's a perfect business card. Um, Speaking to the isolation, <laughs> yeah. there's the subset of people who got their doctorate in psychology. And most mm-hmm. people don't realize that most of psychology is not clinical based. The majority of psychology fields are research based. Mm. So only about mm. 80% of psychology is actually applied work, direct work. And in that subset, 88% of health service providers, which typically are like licensed psychologists, uh, 88% are white mm. and only, only two and a half percent identify as Asian. Wow. Wow. So, so interestingly, uh, I was saying this, I think to Melissa last night too, like where's my Asian American therapist, right? Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. she's like, whoa. So like, but, uh, but it's a problem. Like, you know, it, it's, it's part of the challenge and, um, you know, something that I wasn't sure if it, how relevant it was that this was like expressing that I couldn't do this without Melissa, um, because of all the challenges and what it is to be Aww. an Asian American psychologist. And so I get to have my Asian American therapist right, right here beside me every day. That's so sweet. And, Melissa, and blink twice if you're in but, danger. <laughs> He was patting your head like (laughs) Melissa's. Um, Oh, that's so sweet. Isolation as well, in the sense that if you work or if you put roots down in a region that uh, has a smaller Asian American community, Mm -hmm. um, it's a tricky thing because your primary connection with the community often becomes your role as a therapist. So, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, uh, since Melissa can't stop adding Asian American clients, which is another issue emotionally that we face, <laughs> but she added someone and they'd met a couple of times and she was talking about how 
much she was enjoying this individual. And she said, well, there's another Asian person I can't be friends with. Oh, that's so real. It's really true. I have, uh, I have several Asian American clients right now where, um, you know, one of the things you do in therapy is it's important to also speak in real time about the relationship Mm -hmm. because sometimes there can be forces in the relationship that may get in the way of it being a productive clinical relationship. Right. People that we've, we've talked pretty openly about, wow, like, uh, wish I'd have met you at a social or, yeah, yeah. you know, I had that, you know, and let me just add to the listeners who don't, who are not aware of this. If you are somebody's therapist, you can't know them personally, and which is what you're referencing, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just, right. just in case anyone, somebody, right. Mm. Just in case somebody doesn't know that. Um, but that is so interesting. It's like, there's only four of us here mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wish you were my friend. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That is yes. isolating. So I think it's time for you to say, oh, my book, my schedule is full, but do you want to get a drink <laughs> next weekend? <laughs> I've got a really long waiting list, but I'm going to be at happy hour next Saturday at Applebee's. (laughs) Oh my God. That is the most interesting thing because you are based in Durham, right? Mm -hmm. And in a place where the Asian population, I'm I'm not familiar. Is it sort of like not that It's growing, but it is small. small. Mm. Wow. So, and I'm sure a lot of people, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you was because you're based in like a smaller metropolitan area. And I feel like a lot of people that are listening and a lot of people that DM us are from smaller communities. So they probably know exactly what you're talking about. They're like, oh, there's a one Asian therapist in my city, but do I want them to be my therapist or do I want to get beers with them after work? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's certain pressures and I can't speak for Melissa on this, but one of the other challenges is um, particularly with that second generation client and on. And this is coming from working for probably a decade or so in university and college settings. And then also now working in private practice for the last five or six years, that second generation on is thirsty Mm. for mentor mentorship Mm -hmm guidance, like someone to look up to. And I just feel it's a good pressure and a good obligation, but I I feel very obligated to kind of like that generation, if you will, to do as much as I can for them. Right. Um, And so this is where it gets interesting. Yeah. I'm not going to like go play racquetball with like one of these clients and then like have lunch and watch Netflix, you know, uh, the rest of the day, but you spoke earlier, young me, about the idea of us being in the field also shapes and changes the field, and like how mm-hmm. we, as within the context of our identities, like sort of alter what it is to be a psychologist and what therapy is. And I do think there are questions about what kind of boundaries we keep. Mm-hmm. So that there isn't just one way. Like, okay, because I'm your therapist, that means nothing else can happen. Mm. I run into you. We need to know if you're going to acknowledge my presence or not. And it needs to be very black and white when you're yeah. in part of a small community and these people are right. craving connection. They may want you to come and speak at their student group. Mm. Or they may want you to come to an event, an activism event or something where they're promoting like right. voting for Asians or, or being on a panel. Yeah, 
Yeah. Like those strict rules maybe do not apply to you as Asian American therapists. Like, and that, you know, again, that interdependent piece, it's yeah. right. It's rare that they simply look at you as a therapist. There's some right. sense of like, you kind of feel like wow. a mentor to me as well or an older brother. And so how do you make sure you're thinking through? Cause again, a lot of how we're trained would just be like, no, that's not appropriate. And mm-hmm. I would get that a lot working in the universities mm-hmm. where it'd be like, well, you know, this doesn't seem like the right way. It was like, well, it, it is. And it's important to also be a part of the community, not mm-hmm. just serve the community from the outside. And there are yeah. ways we can make sure that we're still doing so appropriately without compromising their therapy relationship. Mm. So that's really that interesting. So interesting. And Peter, that's I don't, I don't, I don't mean to undermine anything that you just said, but I want to go on the record and say that I have come across my therapist on Tinder and it was incredibly disorienting. Oh my God. What do I do? It's like, oh my God. I know, I know you're not going to risk your license, but holy shit, you know all my secrets and you're not supposed to be on this. Wait, so did you tell your therapist that you saw them on Tinder? <laughs> no, this was, uh, uh, was after, 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 after. I always, I always after, wonder. No, we stopped. We, I stopped seeing her. Otherwise, okay, I, okay. I, I, otherwise, I hundred percent would have told her. <laughs> I, I always wonder if therapists do things to like to like trick me. I, I know that they don't. I know they don't. But in my in the back of my crazy brain, I'm like, you're doing this because like you're you're gonna watch what I do. So do you think like she made a fake profile? That's psycho. I that yeah. was a crazy thought. Maybe I should have kept that thought to myself. I'm, I'm not she gonna did it on that purpose, Brian. <laughs> um, well can I share yeah. can I share oh, one yeah. more reflection on Please. Of course. I guess one of the challenges or one of the sort of senses of obligation as well. Um and this is more personal. It may not re- reflect uh, Melissa or, or other Asian American therapists, but there is this pressure to, like, I want people to see that, like, Asians are humans, too. Like, we're people, too. Right. Like, yeah, we're, not yes. ro- we're not robots. Yes. <laughs> and so for my non-Asian and Asian American clients, especially, again, in a region like this, not all the time, but quite often, as soon as we establish a relationship, I become the most significant relationship with an Asian person that they have. So then it's like, uh, you know, I'm kind of, my tendency is to be kind of goofy and a little bit lighter. And, um, you know, it's just, and I don't force these things, but we're just, we're just ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you have like, this huge laugh and you know, you like to be silly with your clients and it's just always screaming in session. There's always some part of me within that, that it's like, <laughs> you know, and maybe there's an, an, an inadequacy around that. of just like, see, like we're funny. See, like we, <laughs> we have feelings and like yes. deep thoughts about relationships and stuff. And look, I'm Asian, but I'm giving you amazing ideas on how to communicate around this conflict, you know, yeah. like um, both in terms of like, less direct or more direct. I can give you both because <laughs> I yeah. got the bicultural experience. And, and so I just, I don't know. It's, I won't say it's, it's like a weight per se, but it's always present kind of knowing that the relationship has that kind of significance. I'm also yeah. glad that you are doing what you do and you are uh-huh. laying the groundwork for 
the next generation of Asian American mental health care providers because um, I don't know, just speaking to you too, it's making me really happy. And I love your energy is so affable and so infectious. And in a way, it's all, it's inspiring me again to consider pursuing something, pursuing a career in this, um, which is yeah. what I've met, talked about before in the podcast. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say thank you for all the work that you do and for taking the time to speak with us. I just want to say that, you know, like Peter said, that that was something, you know, that I don't think anyone's touched on yet that we've interviewed. Like, you know, yes, we are helping the Asian American community, but we're also helping everyone else outside of that community seeing us as human. Um, And I feel like that's so important. And I was and we wanted to end um, our chat today by asking you the question that we ask all our guests, which is (laughs) what is something that you're proud of? I should have known. (laughs) I guess that's like what you said, what you yeah, what you were saying earlier. I was like, when you were saying that, I was like, this is going to (laughs) be. Do you want me to cut that answer? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You want me to go? Yes, you go. it's funny, y'all started this by saying you get, um, uh, you feel awkward when people compliment you. And so having to yeah. answer questions like this make me feel awkward. But, I feel like everybody says that when they, yeah, <laughs> when they get to this part. Exactly. But one of the things that I'm proud of is that within our role, and like we've tried really hard, or I've tried really hard to be as authentic as possible in this profession, even when that was at the risk of our jobs and with relationships with the predominantly white institutions or systems we are mm-hmm. a part of because it was too important mm-hmm. um, to the communities we serve and to Asian Americans in general, too important to the student communities that we would have served, too important to the Triangle area. Um, and so I'm I'm proud of, uh, taking those risks and, um, kind of speaking out and speaking up, um, and not just being a good Asian all the time. Yes. Yes. And I guess, so I would say that I'm proud of, of us and, you know, including myself, I was like, we just started this private practice like Mm -hmm. two months ago before that we were in a group practice that turned out to be a really toxic environment. And so we took a chance and, and decided to kind of venture off on our own. And, and it's, you know, it was a little scary. I'm not a business person. I'm not good with like money or marketing. I just kind of want to do therapy. Um, but we felt like we needed to do it for our own sakes. And I think for the sakes of, of, clients as well and we've been doing it and I mean kind of kicking ass and you know staying busy and like (laughs) doing this important work and so so I'm really really proud of that and like really happy to you know see it continue to grow and in you know within that we've been able to spend more time with our kids and just have more balance in our lives and just you know, as I've been saying, like really do work that's important and meaningful for us and, and that is helping our community. For our listeners out there, where can they find you or and your work online or any other helpful resources that you might want to plug? If they live in your area. Yeah. So to our great shame, we do not have our website up yet <laughs> because things I'm not ashamed. Things accelerated so quickly the last couple of <laughs> months that we're trying mm-hmm. to catch up there. So the easiest ways, and we welcome people, um, either other Asian Americans who are interested um, 
and piggybacking off Brian there and are interested in a career in mental health potentially, <laughs> or people who just have questions about how to connect to resources, um, we can directly be reached at uh, adams at buckeyepsychology.com. And I'm at Yao at BuckeyePsychology.com. And they can, you know, clients, potential clients can also look us up on Psychology Today. We both have profiles there and contact us um, either directly or through um, that website. And then eventually awesome. we will have our own website and... We'll update you on that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> our next mental health care professional is Sonali Rashatwar. Pronouns they, he. They are a licensed social worker. And they're based in Philadelphia, but you might know them from their extremely popular Instagram account, The Fat Sex Therapist. They specialize in diet trauma, sexual trauma, racial and immigrant trauma. Um, and they're one of the like leaders in their field. And when they told me about their areas of expertise, I, I said, that just sounds like everything that I'm going through as a Asian person. So, <laughs> so here they are. I think that for a lot of us, the reason why we don't seek out care is because we don't have specialists. We don't have folks who understand where we come from. We don't have professionals and clinicians who understand our unique trauma histories and the way that intergenerational trauma has played out due to the unique ways that colonization has showed up for us or uh, social control. Um, I'm thinking about fat phobia, misogyny, queer phobia. Those of us who are based in North America, I think that as Asians, we live in a black and white binary. And if I'm talking to anyone who understands race, um, sometimes they're using often like an analysis of anti-blackness to uh, map onto the Asian experience when it's like really uniquely different because of the way that white supremacy in the U.S. operates. Um, pitting Asians against um, black folks, um, which is why we have what looks like the model minority um, or the model minority myth, as we call it. Um, we, as model minorities, were pitted against black folks and were made to compete with each other so that we would not uh, ask each other, like, wait, why are we competing for, for the same resources? Um, mm -hmm. Why are resources being withheld by white folks in power? How does that like manifest in um, Asian Americans that you've um, interacted with that are seeking mental health care? I see folks, I know that your question was really about perfectionism and like how I see it show up, mm -hmm. um, how, I, how I see it clinically. And I think for the clients who I work with who are South Asian, a lot of times it's rooted in casteism. The perfectionism right. that we inherit comes from this place of thinking that our body isn't for us to enjoy, but it is uh, something that's need to, it needs to be controlled or restricted or maintained. And it's something that need, it needs to be like a project that someone mm. else is proud of. Right. Mm. And achievement wow. is very important, right? I'm not like a person. I don't get to have feelings, but yeah. I have to excel and I have to assimilate and I have to succeed within capitalism and white supremacy in order to wow. receive conditional praise. Mm. That like really hit me so hard. That's so on point. I mean, because, you know, I know that you 
specialize in diet trauma. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that because I feel like, you know, a lot of my humor is about that too. Like how, um, I've had so much trauma. I've experienced that. And I, I see it as a cultural thing, um, as a Korean thing, but what you said that my body is meant for other people to accept that is, I feel like such a, you know, not to generalize, but that is such an Asian thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's one of the wow. earliest ways that we as non-men especially, but people of all genders experience. But it's the way that diet culture and rape culture kind of overlap and look identical. Mm. And wow. each of these structures teach us that our body is not our own. Wow. That it's for someone else to objectify, someone else to control or dictate what it should look like, what it should eat like, what it should dress like how it should perform in school. And if you think about it, you know, like if social control and all the tasks that we have to manage in order to look like we're doing a good job, takes up this much brain space, you know, other things can't exist there too, like abolition or thinking about how to have land back or reparations. We're not really thinking about how to tear down the structures if we're too busy assimilating into them. Mm. I literally got chills when you said that. Are there any sort of perspectives that have helped you personally um, to reclaim your own body and to mitigate this harmful narrative? Yeah, it has been a long and slow process of coming back to myself, telling me that my body is for me to enjoy and I don't have to get caught up in things that uh, someone else's expectations, essentially. So uh, things that help remind me that my body is for me is uh, resisting diet culture, like staying fat, not getting caught up in needing to continue to diet or restrict my food intake. That's like one. And that comes from my lived experience. So I was like uh, a chubby kid in, in my Indian immigrant home and I was put on non-consensual diets from a really early age and encouraged to restrict my food from the age of like nine and 10, like pre-puberty. Mm. And I use that term non-consensual diet intentionally because I don't think that a kid can consent to a diet the same way that a kid can't consent to sex with an adult. I, I'm sorry. I'm like, spe- I can't believe that my mind is blown and it's been five minutes. <laughs> I've literally never thought of it that way. That's crazy. Like your the the use of non-consensual, like how you use it is so spot on. I feel like I just want to say this as a aside cuz you know, we're doing this episode to help our listeners cuz we we they contact us a lot about Asian therapists because they themselves are Asian. I just want to say that what I just experienced in 5 minutes with you is like <laughs> how I feel in therapy when when the when a, a great therapist touches on something and it's like gives you chills and you're like holy holy shit. That's such a that's such a smart way to put it wow I just want to say that the parents being your first bullies that's something that I also feel and I feel like we have a lot in common um and I think our traumas are very similar and it's really very interesting to hear somebody say it so like perfectly I think like how I feel I think my most my main interest in your your work is the like the fat trauma the diet trauma um for asians 
that's like something that comes up so much. Um, and you did explain it so well, saying that our bodies don't really belong to us. Um, do you have any advice for Asians who are experiencing experiencing this with their parents and their families, like how to speak to their families and parents? Mm. I feel like there's a spectrum of how parents are going to react. Um, some parents are more on the softer end, um, which it feels like my parents are sometimes. Like, I'm not going to experience physical violence um, at this point, and I'm, and I'm financially independent, so there's like a uh, few repercussions that can happen for me mm -hmm. taking my space or uh, not calling for weeks or not visiting for weeks. Right. And I know that there is like a sharper end to the other side of the spectrum where like physical violence is imminent. Um, psychological abuse is used and it's like persistent and can be really um, hard to, to continue to work or continue to pretend like life is okay while like some really crisis level things are happening in a family. So it really depends on like the specific context of someone's family and how parents are going to react. I think that it's like completely okay for Asian kids to tell themselves, I'm just going to like keep my head down and survive and not make any waves and just try to make it out. Um, meaning like get a path out where I have financial independence and I don't have to rely on them. And then maybe I'll push at that point. Mm. Um, like it really has to be about keeping us safe, you know, not just mm. physically, but psychologically. Mm -hmm. So if you are in a place where you've got parents who might have like softer repercussions and it, it might not be as like physically dangerous or psychologically dangerous, then I recommend having boundaries. Boundaries are one of the, the smallest ways and they're so hard I don't mean small to say that it should be easy yeah but there's some of the smallest ways that we reclaim what is mine and you yeah. say that's yours mm. Mm. so some small ways would be when my dad has disappointment about uh, me being queer or me being fat or me having um a, a, a non- fancy uh rich paying job that mm -hmm. his uh rich socialite peers will admire mm. and applaud i'll say like you're allowed to have your feelings of disappointment but i don't want to hear about them mm. Mm. so it's like really simple you can have all the feelings you want right um you don't need to tell me about them this is not appropriate sorry i'm like getting so emotional i'm not sure why um i mean oh, i know why but <laughs> i know why but I wanted to say that, sorry, I just wanted to say the boundaries thing is something that I did with my mom. And I, you know, just to give hope to the listeners, <laughs> I said, I asked her not to mention my body ever because usually, you know, when I call her, she'll be like, she's very hard on my weight and she's always, she always says that I'm fat. And so I, I told her to stop. I just said, please stop talking about my body, period. I set the boundary and she, and so... <laughs> It's kind of funny, but she just started every time she would call, she would say, you look skinny. Like, <laughs> like very, like, very not like fake way. She'd be like, hey, you look skinny. And I was like rolling my eyes and I was like, mom, don't talk about my body, period. And then she got really angry at me and said, mm -hmm. 
You said that I always call you fat. So now I'm calling you skinny. And now you're saying I'm wrong. What do you want? Like, what do you want from me? And I said, just don't, just don't talk about my body. Like, just ask me how I am. And she like, couldn't. So for a few like weeks or months, she was like, she was like, I'm okay with this boundary, but then it led to Skirting like... Skirting around it in different ways. <laughs> hey, you're existing in a space. You're taking but up I think space. <laughs> you have a body. But I think, you know, what you said in the beginning, the pain of that, which I didn't really know how to articulate until I spoke to you right now, is that this idea that this is not my thing for me. It's like for mm. her to like you know, like comment on or feel good about. Yeah. And it's like that. I think that's what really was upsetting about it. And I'm, I'm so happy that we talked to you today because that was just such a, it just like, there was like a light bulb that went up out in my head. So yeah. Thank you. Well, you know what I want to ask before we let you go? Um, we, I want to ask, we asked this up, of all our guests on the podcast, what is something that you're proud of? I'm really proud of staying fat. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I'm really proud because not only has it liberated me from that box of like conformity, but it has liberated so many others. I have a huge following on the internet, you know, not just of haters, but like people who are also (laughs) trying to free themselves from that box. Yeah. That diet culture fits us in. I'm so moved. <laughs> and I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm sorry. I don't know why I went from zero to cry- sobbing in like 18 minutes somehow. Feelings are good. Feelings yeah. are, are welcome here. Yeah, I, this, I guess this is a good example for our listeners who are Asian. And I know a lot of Asians, they have the lowest numbers in seeking treatment. And maybe this this could all happen to you if you went to therapy. Oh. <laughs> you could cry oh. like me <laughs> and heal. Yeah, like the whole purpose of trauma therapy and the type of therapy that I do is uh-huh. noticing how really shitty things that have happened to us when we were younger are things that we still carry with us today. Mm. Yeah. And the whole point of trauma therapy is trying to understand how those experiences shape our personality, the way that we treat ourselves, the way that we show up to relationships, like friendships with our, or with our family members or with romantic partners. Um, and how do we deal with that? You know, right. how does that childhood trauma uh, impact the way that I share myself with others and take up space in relationships. Mm. Well, Sonali, I just want to say thank you for this empowering <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and um, for our listeners, where can they find you and your work? You can find me on Instagram at the fat sex therapist. And if you need to reach out to me for any reason, my website is sonaliR.com. Our next mental health care professional is Vicki Laverty. She, her, is an addictions counselor based in Philadelphia. So I feel there is a lack of treatment knowledge for Asian Americans. I found in my experience that there are not many Asian Americans coming into treatment, seeking treatment, finding treatment effective for them. Mm. And... It really brings up a lot of different feelings for me personally. Um, Mm -hmm. 
working in addictions because it's just a very it's it's a hard field to be a part of it's just a hard population it brings up a lot of emotions you're seeing people dying and Mm -hmm. you're hearing your your clients dying like you'll you'll get a message like hey this person died and you're Mm -hmm. like oh well I was just working with them for however long um so then to know that there's a lot of people out there who are suffering it makes me really concerned about Asian Americans who tend to suffer in silence, as they say, from mental health. And I'm wondering if addictions adds another layer to that. So according to one of the websites I sought in 2018, American Addiction Centers found that about 4.8% of Asian Americans had Mm. sought treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to 7.4% of the rest of the population. So wow. that's, you know, that's significantly lower. One thing that I've also found, and just I'm even guilty as my own, in my own clinical skills, shame used as an intervention. Mm. <laughs> and when we're shaming people, that's not going to change any behaviors. No. And I often wonder when we're hearing the language of addiction is a selfish disease. Mm -hmm. It makes so much sense because you're seeing this person that you love and care for do these terrible things that you wouldn't normally see them do in other circumstances. So when we're telling them and reminding them, you're doing this, you're doing that. What about your parents? Right. How does then that get internalized through an Asian American lens? Well, it's like somebody is ill and you're like, you're sick. Why don't you think about your parents? It's just, it doesn't register because then you're even feeling more shame and guilt. But it's like, would you say that to somebody that had like cancer? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're sick. Your parents have to pay for it. It just, it's completely just like the wrong approach. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I imagine there, there's so much shame that's involved because families don't want to have to confront this. They can't, to them, like, I feel like addiction is, one, it's not seen, always seen as a disease. It's more as, oh, if you have failing. this, then you're, you're failing, you're weak-willed, yeah. this is a bad thing. So if we don't diagnose this as this very real thing, then it does not exist. We can just kind of turn, look away. Look away, wish it away, like you were mentioning as well, pray it away. Um, is a very interesting thing that I've been reading on as well because in 1939, for example, when the big book, the big book of AA was written, there's so much criticism about the whiteness, the the Christianity of it. Mm-hmm. And how does that also land to a lot of Asian Americans who are not sharing in that Christian white worldview. Mm. Um, does it, would it say that somebody who might practice Buddhism isn't able to obtain sobriety because they're not looking at the same God or somebody who practices Islam. Mm -hmm. And again, it just is a reminder of this otherness that exists Mm. within the Asian community within America 
Like you're always going to be a part. So even when it comes to treatment centers, we're going to view treatment centers and practice within this binary standard versus this, a whole spectrum of cultures mm-hmm. um, related to food, treatment modalities, how we interact with families. Because also when we're thinking of family therapy sessions within treatment, mm-hmm. is, is there a language barrier that's going to come up? And a, yeah, and a mm. cultural barrier because Asian families do not work like white families, you know? Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. Vicky, can I ask you personally sure. as an Asian American working in your field, what what's your like story? How how did you how did you get here? I knew I wanted to be a therapist when I was 10 years old. Wow. Because I was in a mental hospital, mental hospital. I went mm. into So I was going through a really, really rough time. Um, I was a very, very angry child, Mm -hmm. but it was internal. Nobody knew I was angry. Mm -hmm. My family, some of my extended family actually thought that I was mute (laughs) because I just Mm -hmm. wouldn't talk. I was notorious for shutting down and maybe I had like several journals as a child um, that I've since burned because looking back at that was just like, oh my God, like how Mm. can a a little 10 year old be this angry and have so, so much just like sadness. And when I was in that particular facility, they did their best, but even then I knew they didn't get it. I had to go home in my biracial body, in my Mm. dysfunctional family. I had to still heal that on my own at 10 years old, not knowing how to do that. Because Mm -hmm. also my family had no understanding of what I was going through. So there was Mm. a lot of shame of being half Asian because I wasn't raised by my mother. Something about this is very touching. You know, I I felt like sad about um, when you were saying the suffering in silence that I, yeah. I'm not sure why, but whenever I, whenever that topic comes up, I get very emotional. You know, I feel very sad for, um, mm-hmm. a lot of people that are, you know, in our culture and feel that way. We just want to say thank you for sharing your story and for sharing your insights, especially in regards to your work. And thank you for all the work that you do. And, you know, we want to ask you one last question, which is what we asked all of uh, the other (laughs) therapists on this episode. And that is, what is something that you're proud of? My healing process. Because as much as I have carried a lot of my sadness throughout my life, and it was a huge barrier to a lot of relationships that I've had. Oh my God, I'm getting emotional now. But like, it took me many years to get to the point where I am now and like, this past February, February, 2021 was like my year anniversary of being in therapy and I'm still in therapy. Mm -hmm. And this is like the longest period of therapy that I've had for myself. And Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of really great healing, had some, you know, hiccups here and there because that's what healing does. It's not linear. It's messy. It's, it's gross. It's painful, but I am so proud that I've committed to making sure that I continue to get better because I know what it feels like to feel shitty and like 
carry that with you through everything and feel like you're ruining everything and feeling like you were something is wrong with you. But at the same time, like, no, there was a lot of things that happened in my life that I had to take responsibility to heal. It -hmm. wasn't my fault, but healing that is my responsibility. Yeah. Because I was bleeding out on so many other people that Mm -hmm. didn't deserve it. So I'm really proud that I'm I'm working on that healing process. And I want to thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Can you tell our listeners thank where you. they can find you um, on social media or if they are in need of your services or interested in your services? So my name, again, is Vicki Laverty. My Instagram handle is Vicki underscore N stuff. So V-I-C-K-I underscore letter N S T U F F. Um, and I currently work at Malvern Truman centers here in Philadelphia. That's awesome. It was so nice to talk to you. <laughs> it was good to talk to you both too. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. Vicky. Bye. Um, the next mental health care professional that we spoke to is Christina Harrison. She, they pronouns. Christina is a licensed social worker and she's based out of Los Angeles, California. She is a psychotherapist specializing in first-gen trauma and the QT BIPOC experience. You can find her at noktutherapy.com. Noktu is spelled N-O-K-D-U therapy.com. And Noktu Therapy is a private practice um, run by another Asian American woman. And you can check out their website for more information. Yeah. So one, just first and foremost, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Um, I was doing my due diligence trying to be like a good little podcast guest and I was like oh like let me hop on the internets and like look at all of this data because I haven't had a chance to like get in contact with it you know what are some current updates what are some trends and as I was like looking I very softly and gently playfully started scolding myself because I was like you haven't looked at this in a minute how Mm. how are you going to call yourself like an informed therapist if you don't know the stats? And then Mm -hmm. I started looking and I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Like I, I haven't done this in a while. Cause I like, I'm now incredibly sad after doing it. And Mm, I was like looking, going back and forth and seeing that, like in regards to some of the things that like Asian American folks are experiencing, it's, it's like, the answer is D, all of the above. It's across the board. You're seeing increased rates of all of these things in terms of depression, anxiety, hopelessness, body dysmorphia, eating disorders, trauma, PTSD. And then I was like, ah, like this is a lot. And then on the flip side, I was looking into it more, but then I'm also seeing like, because of our resilience and because of, you know, destigmatization of access to mental health and also um, just, you know, willingness to do things, I was noticing myself having this, um, feeling of being like, oh, wait, but then there's, uh, 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 uh." and I was Mm -hmm. thinking, I was like, wait, hold it. I I'm familiar with this, like back and forth process of feeling like whiplash being like, okay, there's this, but then there's this, but then there's this, but then there's this. So before I decided to like name that, I went ahead and like looked at a little bit more data and research and, um, it, it really did like validate my experience in terms of what I was having in mm-hmm. that the data reflects mm-hmm. something that was very common, I think, for a lot of us as Asian Americans in that just simply trying to exist is this right. really back and forth pull 
Right. You know, it's this like whole ass dialectic of like trying to exist in so many different spaces at once. Right. Right. How do I exist as an Asian person? But then I'm also having to navigate what it means to people outside of my immediate network is what it means to be Asian. And I'm trying to succeed because whether it be formally or informally, there are these expectations that are being placed on me in my family. And then layering Mm -hmm. on top of that, being a first generation person, it's a lot of just like two very seemingly opposite perspectives or means of existing Right. In the same place at the same time. Yeah. And I'm out here just trying to navigate, like, how do I make my way through effectively? And I feel like that is a very common experience, not only for Asian Americans, but yeah. first generation folks as a whole. Mm. And what's unique on top of that is you, I know y'all have talked about this on the pod, layering mm-hmm. the model minority myth on top of that. Right. And so having to navigate all of these things. And I'm just, I'm noticing that like, that has been my experience yeah. as someone who is mm-hmm. Asian American. That has been my experience with also folks in my pod and my immediate network. And that's also a very common experience with the folks that, you know, I do therapy with. It's this, right. this, this existing in this tension and trying to thrive in spite of it. So I'm assuming that a lot of the clients that you see are first generation Americans. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a lot of folks I'm getting. It's like, this is my first time being in therapy. And like, I don't know what this process looks like, or, um, I don't even know necessarily what I'm looking for. I just, I know I need help because of the things that's going on for me. Like it's not working anymore. Mm. Or then you get folks that are, um, I want to say maybe like a little bit younger than us where they have access to resources and technology. Like, Thank you, TikTok and Instagram, I guess, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in yeah. terms of like, you know, just like accessibility. And folks are saying like, you know, I, I, I've had therapy before and like it, it helped me start putting things into place. But like I, I need to start growing. And I want to start growing. And right. um, we're definitely seeing an uptick in that, especially since this past year. Mm-hmm. I don't, right. don't want to call it like a silver lining or anything. But like, you know, if all of us, we've had privileged to be safe and secure, you know, for the most part, like we've had to sit our ass inside and be with ourselves. Would you say that there is some advice or common things that you find repeating across uh, when you're, I guess, treating or advising your list of clients who are first generation Americans? Like, are there certain things that you find yourself saying uh, frequently? Oh my God, me too. <laughs> like, oh wow. And I, I, yeah. I, like, I think that, that even though that doesn't really feel like something a therapist would do, I, I think that's so powerful to know that like, mm. oh my God, thank you. Like, it's not just me experiencing this. Like there's not just something that's quote unquote wrong with me or like, I'm not the only one who's struggling with this. And by wow. validating that experience, it allows people to see like, okay, I can, there, there's someone who's been out there and they've been able to move through it. So if someone yeah. else can do it, I absolutely can do it too. Yeah. You know, we spoke to a, another therapist who said something similar where they were like, there are these rules in therapy, you know, that you're probably maybe not supposed to say me too, or, or you're not supposed to be friends with this person because they're, even though they're your same race, whatever, whatever. Um, but then that other therapist was kind of saying those rules maybe don't apply to us because like what you said, like saying me too is very validating. Like I would love to hear a therapist if I brought up something say to me, oh yeah, I totally get it when white people do this or, you know, like, like that, that would feel really good. I feel like. 
You know, just my approach to therapy, like who y'all are talking to right now, that's who I am in my life the other 23 hours of the day. And that's also who's going to show up in this therapy space. And like Mm -hmm. the reason for that is because we spend so much time and effort and energy trying to like soften our edges and put Mm -hmm. ourselves in these nice, comfortable little boxes to make ourselves palatable for other people, like code switching, all of that. And it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so I am myself in this space not that anyone needs permission, but like, you know, I'm going to show up because I want this to be a safe space for both of us. I'm going to be authentic as possible right. with you so that you give yourself permission whenever you're ready to do the same. And yeah. that's where the work in therapy happens. I guess, you know, when you said me too, like, oh, I, I go through that. Can you just give us like maybe one example of like a common like mental health thing that a first gen person might experience? And I was like, I don't know if this is because like I'm a Scorpio because like anxiety and depression just like runs in my family line. But like I tend to live so much in my head and like mm. before I even get in a situation, I'm already playing out like, well, this scenario and this scenario and this scenario. And then if this happens and I'm going to do this and then, you know, and I'm like, I'm time traveling in the future trying to like justify or legitimate any of the decisions I will or will not make. Mm. I'm preparing for the worst when like who's to say that the other side of that, like the absolute best ideal things might not happen or like it might unfold completely neutral. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of like learning to recognize where I'm like, I'm anxious. Okay. I'm, I'm doing this thing where I'm trying to live 90 million parallel lives, but really all I have is this present moment. All I have is this life that I have right now. So like, let's work on pulling myself back and being effective for the life that I do have. Because if I just spend all this time up here, like I'm missing all of the things that are happening out here and I don't have access to all the joy, pleasure, love, et cetera, et cetera, that is available and accessible to me. We're running out of time, but before we let you go, we have one last question for you. And we asked this of all our guests on the podcast. Um, what is something that you're proud of? Ooh, honestly, so this is this is strange for me to say because there have absolutely been points in time in my life where I didn't believe this. But like, I am so fucking proud of like where I am now. Ooh, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Um, so many people have paved the way and... Um, sacrificed in order for me to have access to the things that I do and I'm fucking doing right by them. So like there are days where it's harder to hold up than others, but just holistically, like I'm really fucking proud of myself. <laughs> Ooh. I like, I really like your answer. I like the answer you said you're doing right by them. Cause sometimes I feel like so many people have to fight for me to be able to do what I'm doing right now. And mm-hmm. if I wasn't doing that, then it would have kind of been in vain, you know? Can you can you give us your social media um, handle just for our listeners if they want to follow you? Absolutely. Um, so my professional Instagram is actually uh, managed by my lovely colleague, Gongji Lee, who is also a Korean first-gen um, Asian-American therapist, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow us at Nokdu Therapy, N-O-K-D-U Therapy on IG. Um, I mean, you can follow my personal Instagram, but honestly, the only reason why I'm up there is just to send people memes. C-H-A-F-A-C, <laughs> triple E, Chaface. Love it. And you're based in Los Angeles, correct? Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. And if you made it this far, thank you for listening. That is our episode. Um, Let us know what you thought of it. Shoot us a note in the DMs. And once again, thank you for listening to the podcast. 
Uh, just a reminder, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash feelingasian. Follow us on socials at Feeling Asian Podcast. We are on Instagram and TikTok. And we are now on YouTube. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can do a quick search, Feeling Asian Podcast. There's a link to it on our Instagram page in the bio. And a quick shout out to our audio engineer, Sarah Pack. If you need a wonderful, tremendous, talented audio engineer, hit her up on Instagram at I am underscore P-A-K-T. That is at impact. And thank you again and enjoy the rest of the week. Bye.